Thank you, Clever. That was powerful and beautiful. Thank you. And I'd also like to thank um, Constantine, Tomenko, Andre, and Marita for those beautiful pieces that were played. We are blessed by the beautiful music. Let's bow our heads for prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful privilege of being able to be here today to worship with you. We ask you, Father, to please come into our hearts, that you will fill us, and that you will be and guide us and lead us in all that we do. Most of all, we thank you because you love us and you want your spirit to be in us. And may we answer you when you call us in your name. Amen. So today I wanted to share with you um, a little bit about Vacation Bible School because we were here two weeks ago having a wonderful time with the children for Vacation Bible School, and we did not have a chance to do a closing program because there were a lot of things that were happening, and it just happened to be that the, schedules, the schedule just did not work out. So if you would kind of put the last two weeks and kind of condense it and put it together, we're sort of doing what I would do at the closing program for Vacation Bible School. So I wanted to give you just a little report. Uh, we had 200 children that attended our Vacation Bible School. Our theme was on Joseph from prison to palace. With those 200 children, we had 120 volunteers. These were middle schoolers, high schoolers, adults who helped throughout. So imagine that ratio. Very, very, very good. And we had amazing teams of people that were overseeing this. Um, I thank Jim Callen and Nancy um, Fennell, Christy Zinke. We had Cindy DePinto in the marketplace. We just, I know I'm going to forget all the names, but we have 20 amazing family leaders. We had Jared Lutz, who was Joseph. Many, many people, Tracy Bellevue, who also helped with our volunteers. And, and I'm just mentioning this just to demonstrate to you the sheer volume of people that come together to make this happen. It just doesn't happen. It doesn't come out of nowhere. It, it, we have amazing people here in this church who love the children, who love working for them. And we had a fantastic week. With those 200 children, there was... Um, 17% that uh, were recorded as not being affiliated with any church. So as you can see, this is a viable evangelistic effort. And it's been growing over the years. We were somewhere 7 10%. Last year, we were at 14%. Now we've gone to 17%, which is bringing actually some, um, even some challenges before us because we're at the point where we can't have as many as the people that want to come in. And we're, we've been exploring those ideas. Do we do a program in the morning? Do we do two? Do we do one at night? Or do we do two separate ones? And I'm sure Dr. Kelly is like, one is enough. But <laughs> we just appreciate the fact that we have so many people who are willing to help us and do this. And there are good challenges ahead of us that um, these precious children come and get to enjoy <clears throat> singing, celebrating, learning about Joseph and his story, 
They spent time with their family leaders, which was a time when they sort of did a small devotional time to learn more about the lesson. They got to visit the marketplace, they had games, they got to try some snacks and food tasting. We had a Mesa marketplace <clears throat> leaders that were there helping us. The children had a great time. So through Joseph's experience, specifically during that week, <clears throat> they learned more about what it was that he went through, his experience from the time that he was in prison to the palace. And as they were learning this, they were building <clears throat> more lessons as to how to trust God. They learned many memory, memory verses every day. They also learned about caring for others. And we had a mission, a mission project. <clears throat> Excuse me. They had a mission project for Bright Horizons, and we've been also collecting funds for that. So it's an overall evangelistic effort, not only to think about them, but to think about others and how God's lessons in the Bible can draw lessons for us as we build trust in God. And this is where I pick up. This is what I wanted to do that I wasn't able to do, and I want to do it today, and that is to talk about this amazing story of Joseph. <clears throat> As you know, <clears throat> excuse me, the story of Joseph is found in the book of Genesis, chapters 30 to 50. Now, of course, we're not going to be reading all of that. It's too much. I would expect you to perhaps take the time to look at it <clears throat> and study it. Excuse me to look at it and study it more fully and to get acquainted more with the details of that story. But if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 41, to the text that was just read. Genesis chapter 41, verses 38 to 41. And it reads, and Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? <clears throat> then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and as wise as you. <clears throat> you shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Such a one in whom is the Spirit of God. Would you like to be described in that way? I sure would. <coughs> How is it that this young man... Joseph is able to attain such a track record, one of firmness in character, uprightness, and wisdom. Through his story, as we do just a very quick highlight review of his story, we realize that through his suffering, no matter how unfair things, th things got, it develops him into a strong young man, a strong character and deep wisdom. So what we're going to do is we're going to show you some little things that come along the way as we look through his story and how these little things 
build up his character. So we start with dreams. We know that Joseph was a dreamer. Of course, of course his brothers called him that, right? Oh no, here comes that dreamer. And of course, we also understand that they did not appreciate this because Joseph obviously was coming to them and telling them, hey, I've had a dream and guess what? You are gonna bow down to me. Now, imagine being the older brothers. Uh, I don't think so. That definitely doesn't work with them, right? So they don't appreciate Joseph coming to them and telling them these things. Now, obviously, God has been working in Joseph's lives early on, reflecting, letting him know that he has some bigger plans for him, that he is reserving him for a bigger purpose. So there's an understanding of God's design for his life early on. So as Joseph is revealing this information, of course, he's not displaying the greatest attitude, right? He's very immature. He's quite boastful. And to add to the fire, he's sort of taunting them. You get to serve me. So that doesn't go very well with them. He's being overly confident, overly assertive. So imagine these brothers. What are we going to do with Joseph? So this obviously causes some friction among them. In fact, the brothers are aggravated. They hate him over the possibility of him being their ruler to tell them what to do. After all, he is a little brother. What is he thinking? How can that be possible? It's unthinkable. And Jacob doesn't make things any better, right? He's showing favoritism. And he gives some special gifts, of course, the son of Rachel. And of course, Benjamin. He's showing how much he loves them, but much more so than the other ones. And they notice. He gives, Jacob gives Joseph a special gift, a tunic. And we're familiar with the stories, right? A tunic. But it's not just any kind of robe. I mean, something simple as that in their time would have been perhaps not something that had a lot of color. It wasn't really embellished in any way. It wasn't long. It didn't have sleeves. It would have just been a simple robe. But no, Jacob gave him a robe that represented royalty. It had color. It had embellishment. It was long sleeve. It was long to the ankle. That was a type of robe for a king for someone of high status. And I'm sure the brothers, again, said, what is he doing? They're considering all these things that keep happening. They're keeping this in their minds. So they keep hoping for the opportunity that they can do something about it, to get rid of him. So when the opportunity arises, the father sends them to go meet them and see how things are going. They said, this is it. Time to seize the moment. And they all plot to kill him. Fortunately, Reuben saves the day. He says, no, 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 no. We could just do something else. And they plan to put him in a pit. And then they see this Midianites tribes coming through. And they decide to sell him as a slave. 
and they plot again to convince the father that somehow Joseph is dead. So once he sold to them, these Midianite traders go into Egypt and they sell him again. And he becomes a slave in Potiphar's home. He was Pharaoh's first rank officer, the captain of the bodyguard. And here's the first little thing that we can see. Joseph learns a very important lesson, and one that we ought to learn as well. Our talents and knowledge come from God. It is more appropriate to thank God for them than to brag about them. Secondly, another little thing. Self-assurance molded by pain and combined with a personal knowledge of God allowed Joseph to survive and to prosper where most would have failed. So there is some good in being self-assured, but sometimes the intention also says a lot. His quiet wisdom, as he learned along the way, added to this confidence, and this is what helped him win the hearts of those who were around him. So he finds favor of his master and becomes his personal servant. And he gives her more, more trust and responsibility. His master recognizes God's blessings on his life. And the master's wife then gets into the mix of things. So as far as things go, he's doing all right until she meddles and gets into the mix. And as much as Joseph tried to resist her, she continued on until the point when he finally says, I cannot do this thing. It is a sin against God. He doesn't say, no, because I get into trouble. No, because it might not look right. No. He says, no, this will be a sin against God. Nevertheless, she accuses him, and he is taken to prison. Now, his master could have killed him instantly, right there and then, but he doesn't, which helps me understand a little bit more about this. If you read between the lines, obviously he doesn't trust his wife. There must have been something along the way that must have indicated to him that she perhaps in other situations, had shown lack of trust, and he didn't quite trust her story. So instead of killing Joseph, he puts him in prison. So all right, he's there in prison, and he again continues to flourish, to grow, and eventually finds favor on the chief jailer. To such point that he's given more and more responsibility, and he gains his trust. And it's at this point that he gets introduced to the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in this prison. Now, these individuals were very important people in Pharaoh's um, uh, kingdom. These were trusted men. They were responsible for trying all the food 
all drink anything that came nearby to the king that he would consume. That was their job. So you would suspect, why? it sounds suspicious that these gentlemen who were supposed to be taking care of the king, the pharaoh, get sent to prison. So obviously there's some suspicion that there was some conspi conspiration going on, right? Some conspiring against Pharaoh. And while they're there, they have a dream, and they're troubled about it. And Joseph finds out, and he becomes a friend, and they entrust him with his dreams. And Joseph gives him the meaning of his dreams. We know that God has been showing him over and over again different messages and its interpretations. So he's able and ready to help them. And once again, Joseph tells them, don't forget about me. Remember me. When you're out there, when you get out, please think of me. Don't forget me. I, I've been here unjustly. I should not be here. Please do something to get me out of here. But we know as the story progresses, two years go by and Joseph is still in jail. And it is not until Pharaoh gets two dreams, two very meaningful dreams that he does not understand and his wise people are not able to interpret for him that the chief cupbearer remembers, I know someone who can do this. And he tells Pharaoh about Joseph, that he could interpret the dreams. So note here that Joseph's faith was very deep. He still was there through that time, holding on, and he was waiting for the next opportunity. So here's a little thing, another little thing. When we feel passed by, overlooked, or forgotten, we shouldn't be surprised that often people are ungrateful. And in similar situations, trust God. More opportunities may be waiting when we least expect them. So Joseph is taken to Pharaoh to hear these dreams, and then he begins to interpret them. Now, when the subject of the dreams come up, Joseph focuses his attention on God. Rather than using the situation for, to make himself look good, he turns it into a powerful witnessing tool for God. Joseph made sure that he gave credit where credit was due, credit to God. So here's another little thing. We should be careful to do the same thing, to take honor for ourselves is stealing honor and glory from God. Don't be silent when you know you should be giving glory and credit to God. Remember to thank God for what you are and have so your trust does not become misplaced. And here's another thing. One secret of effective witnessing is recognizing the opportunities to relate God to other person's experiences. So in this case, the opportunity arises, and Joseph has the courage to speak. 
God uses him as his messenger. This is a very important message that he must deliver to Pharaoh. Was Joseph prepared? You may say yes. You may say perhaps no. He had no warning that a specific day he would be taken out of jail, literally, and positioned right in front of the king to question him. Yet, he was ready for almost anything because of the right relationship that he had with God. It wasn't Joseph's knowledge of dreams that helped him interpret their meaning. It was his knowledge of God. Which brings me to another thing. Be ready for opportunities by getting to know more about God. Then you will be ready to call on him when the opportunities come your way. So Joseph gives the king essentially a survival plan for 14 years. Seven years are going to be good. Seven years are going to be really, really bad. So the only way to prevent the starvation is to come up with a plan. He gives them a famine plan. If it hadn't been for this plan, Egypt would have turned from prosperity to ruin. So here's a few more little things. Many find that detailed planning is boring and unnecessary. But planning is a responsibility. It's not an option. Joseph was able to save a nation by translating God's bigger plan to put it into Egypt's people, the, the, the land, the nation, and put it into practical actions and implementation. This famine was going to be devastating. It was severe. And without God's intervention, the Egyptian nation would have crumbled. So here's another thing. We must take the time to translate God's plan for us into practical actions too. So it tells us that Pharaoh recognizes Joseph was a man that had God's spirit. Perhaps not exactly the Lord's spirit, but some divine spirit. This is what he says. In whom there was a divine spirit. He recognizes this. Obviously, nobody else is able to do this. And Joseph, with God's help, giving him credit, he tells him exactly what to do. You know, here's another little lesson. You probably won't get to interpret dreams for a king. Probably never in your life you might be able to do that. But those who know you should be able to see God in you. How? Through your kind words, your merciful acts, and your wise advice. And in the times that we're living right now, this is even more crucial, more important. Do your relatives, your neighbors, your co-workers see you as a person in whom the Spirit of God lives? 
after all of these events and all these trials that Joseph has been facing, he emerges as ruler of Egypt, the governor no less. Joseph rose quickly from dungeon to palace. And you see, I think the picture of that robe that comes into play by Jacob giving it to his son, I think it was a foretelling of what would happen in Joseph's life, that someday he would be a very important person, somebody who will rule and guide for God. So his training for this responsibility involved betrayal, abandonment, being sold, being a slave, being a, pri a prisoner. And in each situation, he learned the importance of serving God and serving others. He remained faithful. So here's another little thing. Whatever situation, no matter how undesirable, consider part of your molding and shaping formula for serving God. Joseph was 30 years old when he became governor of Egypt. He was 17 when he was sold into slavery by his brothers, which means he spent 11 years as a slave and two years in prison. What people meant to hurt Joseph, God turned to good. So often we struggle by ourselves, forgetting that God is able to help us fight the battles, whether they're against men with weapons or against spiritual forces. Joseph was able to draw closer to God as adversity mounted. To trust God to rescue you shows great faith. Are we willing to trust God enough <clears throat> to wait patiently for him to bring good out of a bad situation or bad situations? I would hope so. You can trust him because as Joseph learned, God can overrule people's evil intentions <clears throat> to bring about his intended results. We should be encouraged to rely on God for guidance and to utilize that potential he has given us. And the greatest part of this story is that Joseph forgives. God meant it for good. This is why he tells his brothers, it's okay, I forgive you. God meant it for good. So the dreams that he has been telling his brothers when he was young come true. His brothers do come and bow before him. But he, at this point, is not the snotty little boy at that point, right? He says, I forgive you. I love you, and I want to be sure that you're secure, and I want you to bring your families to be here with me. And he keeps that promise. 
and he's reunited again with his entire family and his father. So here's another little thing. Joseph demonstrated how God graciously accepts us even though we don't deserve it. Because God forgives us even when we ignore him, when we reject him, we should graciously forgive others. I wanted to share a statement from the book Patriarchs and Prophets. And if you have this book, it's in pages 222 and 223 that talks specifically about this part of Joseph's uh, life. But this statement was very powerful. There are few who realize the influence of the little things of life upon the development of character. Nothing with which we have to do is really small in God's context. The varied circumstances that we meet day by day are designed to test our faithfulness and to qualify us for greater trusts. My brothers and sisters, character is not inherited. Character is a lifetime work, is the result of diligent, persevering effort. God provides the opportunities, but the success depends on, those, on the use of those opportunities. Are we going to approach opportunities that come along our way as positive lessons from which we can learn? Growing, shaping experiences? Or are we just merely going to grumble and complain, let them pass by without any alteration in our lives? At times we may think that opportunities are inconveniences. However, those very inconveniences might be exactly what God has put forth in your life to help you develop, to help us grow. It reminds me of perhaps a refining process that a diamond goes through. Now, I know a lot about diamonds. I like diamonds. It's my birthstone, by the way. If you know anything about diamonds, you know that these precious stones are very rough at first, right? They're found between the mantle layer of the earth. You have the crust, and then you have the mantle, and then you have the superheated core layer. There's intense pressure that changes the molecular structure of carbon by crushing atoms together, pressure and heat forcing them to form a lattice-like structure. And those carbons change into this raw material from where the diamond comes. So this intense heat is about 2,700 degrees Fahrenheit. And then you put in this pressure. It's like putting 4,000 grown men on your foot the weight of 4,000 grown men on your foot, and that pressure and heat coming together with the minerals and just colliding and coming together. And this is how carbon produces diamonds. Diamonds are the hardest substance precisely because of all of these, all these perfectly maneuvering of, of circumstances coming together. 
And did you know that in order to cut a diamond, you must use a diamond in some format? You have to use a diamond. It's the only way you can cut it. In fact, what they do is, if you've ever seen the process, they have a disc that rotates, and they put a gum paste or some sort of a powder paste on the disc, and that's where they take the raw material, and as they start refining it and molding it, and as it continues to move and is angled at different directions, then the, the, the diamond then comes to fruition. So from the first day, it's just, you know, you would think that there isn't much in there. And many think it's coal, but it's actual carbon. And they take it out, and there's this little material left that's called the window, which is the rough diamond. But it's not until it goes into that process where it's cut, where it's refined, where it's polished, that the diamond emerges. So the best quality of diamonds is based on four C's, four C words, color, clarity, carrot, which is the weight, and the cut. And you know, nowadays they're also making synthetic diamonds, and there's a reason why many places have to certify diamonds to really authenticate that they're real, right? So ladies, just watch out for that. <laughs> Whether natural or synthetic, we understand this process. There's a striking balance of minerals and heat and pressure in order to produce a precious gem. So equally, experiences in our lives polish and mold our character. These are these times when experience situations that we have may make us feel, I know this, that there are times that we feel like there's this intense pressure, this intense man's going over us, huge amounts of tension and stress that are overcoming us. Or sometimes we may feel like this is just great fire and heat being hurled at us. I submit to you that these are those moments when we are experiencing situations or challenges that are polishing us, that are our refining process. This is when it's occurring. We may not like it. It may be uncomfortable when we're being polished, when we're being cut, when we are being refined. But God is doing something to help us, to mold us, to refine our character, to prepare us for his purpose. And just as each diamond is unique, God may be molding us for his unique purpose. A certain way, he's sharpening, molding, oh, perhaps a little off on this side, turning, smoothing, shining to a certain quality and value. By being faithful in small matters, we can acquire the strength to be faithful in the great matters that God puts before us. And perhaps you may identify with one or more of these little things that Joseph experienced. Perhaps some may hate you. Some may betray you. Some may desert you, even from your family. You may be exposed to sexual temptation punished for doing the right thing, endure 
a type of imprisonment, or maybe real imprisonment, to be forgotten by those whom you help. And yet, in Joseph's experience, we understand that he acted positively, correctly, and faithfully when required to do so. Are you experiencing struggles in life? Remember Joseph. Remember his struggles. Remember his positive response in each case. This was a transformation that he had to step forward. He didn't spend much time asking why or saying, this is so unfair. His approach was more, what do I do now? God, what do I do now? Those who met Joseph were aware that wherever he went and whatever he did, God was with him. They recognized. They recognized it. So one last little thing. When you are facing a setback, the beginning of a Joseph-like attitude is to acknowledge that God is with you. There's nothing like his presence to shed new light in a dark situation. If we could truly recognize the lessons that God may send our way as a process of polishing, refinement, then we could develop the character and the integrity of Joseph. I encourage all of us now, I encourage you to invite God to work in this way in your life, to help you recognize the little lessons and to lead you through this process of character development. And when individuals around you recognize God's spirit in you, just as Pharaoh and others did in Joseph's life, then do not be surprised when the inquiry comes and the answer is revealed. Can we find a man, a woman like this, in whom is a divine spirit? And the answer will be certain and irrefutably clear. You are such a one. You are the one. And God will make it all good.